Chapter Eight of The Maid of Skur. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Maid of Skur by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Eight. Children will be children. The boys of Skur, as we always call those rough fellows over at Newton, were rabbiting in the warren, according to their usual practice on a Sunday afternoon. A loose, unseemly lot of lads, from fifteen up to two and twenty years of age, perhaps, and very little to choose between them as to work and character. All, however, were known to be first-rate hands at any kind of sporting, or of poaching, or of any roving pleasure. Watkin, the sixth and youngest boy, was of a different nature. His brothers always cast him off, and treated him with a high contempt, yet never could despise him. In their rough way, they could hardly help a sulky sort of love for him. The seventh and last child had been a girl, a sweet little creature as could be seen, and taking after Watkin. But she had something on her throat from six months up to six years old and when she died, some three months back, people who had been in the house said that her mother would sooner have lost all the boys put together if you left Watkin out of them. How that was I cannot say, and preferred to avoid those subjects, but I know that poor Black Evan swore no oath worth speaking of for one great market and two small ones, but seemed brought down to sit by himself, drinking quietly, all day long. When we came to the ancient hall, or kitchen as they now called it, for a moment I was vexed, expecting more of a rush perhaps than I was entitled to. Knowing how much that young child owed me for her preservation, and feeling how fond I was of her, what did I look for but wild delight at seeing old Davy back again? However, it seems she had taken up with another and forgotten me. Watkin, the youngest boy of Skur was an innocent, good little fellow, about twelve years old at that time. Bardy had found this out already, as quickly as she found out my goodness, even by the moonlight. She had taken the lead upon Watkin, and was laying down the law to him, upon a question of deep importance, about the manner of dancing. I could dance a hornpipe with anybody, and forward I came to listen. Oh, now I tell her. He mustn't do like that, Yatkin. He must go yond and yond like this, and he must hold her clothes out, same as I does. Guardy lay. He must hold her clothes out all the time, he must. The little atom, all the time she delivered these injunctions, was holding out her tiny frock in the daintiest manner, and tripping sideways here and there, and turning round quite upon tiptoe, with her childish figure poised, and her chin thrown forward, and then she would give a good hard jump, but all to the tune of the brass Jew's harp which the boy was playing for his very life. And all the while she was doing this, the amount of energy and expression in her face was wonderful. You would have thought there was nothing else in all the world that required doing with such zeal and abandonment. Presently the boy stopped for a moment, and she came and took the knee of his trousers, 
and put it to her pretty lips with the most ardent gratitude. She must be a foreigner, said I to myself. No British child could dance like that and talk so, and no British child ever shows gratitude. As they had not espied us yet, where we stood in the passage corner, I drew Bunny backward and found her all of a tremble with eagerness to go and help. More pay, said little Missy with a coaxing look. More pay, Yatkin. No, no, you must say more play, please, Watkin. See you pay, Yatkin. I ain't more pay. The funny thing laughed at herself while saying it as if with some comic inner sense of her own insatiability in the matter of play. "'But how do you expect me to play the music?' asked Watkin, very reasonably, "'if I am to hold my clothes out all the time.' "'Can I?' she replied, looking up at him with the deepest disappointment. "'Can't I play and dance too, Yakin? I thought I could do anything. I wants to go to my dear mamma and papa and ickle bother.' Here she began to set up a very lamentable cry, and Watkin in vain tried to comfort her till, hearing us, she broke from him. "'There's my dear mamma! There's my dear mamma coming!' she exclaimed, as she trotted full speed to the door. "Mamma, mamma, here I is! And he mustn't scold poor Susan!' It is out of my power to describe how a little flushed countenance fell when she saw only me and Bunny. She drew back suddenly, with the brightness fading out of her eager eyes, and the tears that were in them began to roll, and her bits of hands went up to her forehead, as if she had lost herself, and the corners of her mouth came down, and then with a sob she turned away, and with quivering shoulders hid herself. I scarcely knew what to do for the best, but our bunny was very good to her, even better than could have been hoped although she came of a kindly race. Without standing upon ceremony, as many children would have done, up she ran to the motherless stranger, and kneeling down on the floor, contrived to make her turn and look at her. Then Bunny pulled out her new handkerchief, of which she was proud, I can tell you, being the first she had ever owned, made from the soundest corner of Mother Joan's old window-blind, and only allowed with a Sunday frock and although she had too much respect for this to wet it with anything herself, she never for a moment grudged to wipe poor Bardie's eyes with it. Nay, she even permitted her, which was much more for a child to do, to take it into her own two hands and rub away at her eyes with it. Gradually she coaxed her out of the cupboard of her refuge, and sitting in some posture known to none but women children, without a stool to help her, she got the little one on her lap, and stroked at her, and murmured to her, as if she had found a favourite doll in the depth of trouble. Upon the whole, I was so pleased that I vowed to myself I would give my bunny the very brightest halfpenny I should earn upon the morrow. Meanwhile, the baby of higher birth, as a glance was enough to show her, began to relax and come down a little both from her dignity and her woe. She looked at Bunny with a gleam of humour, to which her wet eyes gave effect. "'He call that a ponky handkerchief? Does a call that a ponky handkerchief?' Bunny was so overpowered by this, after all she had done, 
and that the air of pity wherewith her proud ornament was flung on the floor, that she could only look at me as if I had cheated her about it. And truly, I had seen no need to tell her about Mother Jones and her blind. Then these little ones got up, having sense of a natural discordance of rank between them, and Bunny no longer wiped the eyes of Bardy, nor Bardy wept in the arms of Bunny. They put their little hands behind them, and stood apart to think a bit, and watched each other shyly. To see them move their mouths and fingers, and peep from the corners of their eyes, was as good as almost any play without a hornpipe in it. It made no difference, however. Very soon they came to settle it between them. The low-born bunny looked down upon Bardy for being so much smaller, and the high-born Bardy looked down upon Bunny for being so much coarser. But neither was able to tell the other at all what her opinion was, and so, without any further trouble, they became very excellent playmates. Doing my best to make them friends, I seized the little stranger and gave her several good toss-ups, as well as tickles between them, and this was more than she could resist, being, as her nature shows, thoroughly fond of any kind of pleasure and amusement. She laughed, and she flung out her arms, and every time she made such jumps as to go up like a feather. Pretty soon I saw, however, that this had gone on too long for Bunny. She put her poor handkerchief out of sight, and then some fingers into her mouth, and she looked as black as a dog in a kennel. But Bardy showed good nature now, for she ran up to Bunny, and took her hand, and led her to me, and said very nicely, "'Give this ickle girl some, doe Davy. She hasn't had no pay at all. Oh, hot boofly buckins you got! Oh, jolly jolly! Keel song grand!' This admiration of my buttons— which truly were very handsome, being on my regulation coat, and as good as gilt almost, with minotaur, a kind of grampus, as they say, done round them, this appreciation of the navy made me more and more perceive what a dear child was come ashore to us, and that we ought to look alive to make something out of her. If she had any friends remaining, and they could scarcely have all been drowned, being, as she clearly was, of a high and therefore rich family, it might be worth ten times as much as even my boat had been to me, to keep her safe and restore her in a fat state when demanded. With that, I made up my mind to take her home with me that very night, especially as Bunny seemed to have set up a wonderful fancy to her. But man sees single, God sees double, as our saying is, and her bits of French made me afraid that she might, after all, be a beggar. Now, go and play like two little dears, and remember whose day it is, I said to them both, for I felt the duty of keeping my grandchild up to the mark on all religious questions. And be sure you don't go near the well, nor out of sight of the house at all, nor pull the tails of the chickens out, nor throw stones at the piggy-wiggy, for I knew what Bunny's tricks were. "'And now, what it, my boy, come and talk to me, "'and perhaps I will give you a June-eating apple "'from my own tree under the clevis.' "'Although the heat was tremendous now, "'even inside those three-feet walls, "'the little things did as I bade them, "'and I made the most of this occasion "'to have a talk with Watkin, "'who told me everything he knew. "'His mother had not been down since dinner, 
which they always got anyhow, because his father, who had been poorly for some days, and feverish, and forced to lie in bed a little, came to the top of the stairs and called, requiring some attendance. What this meant I knew as well as if I had seen Black Evan there, parched with thirst, and with great eyes rolling after helpless drunkenness, and roaring with his nightclothes on for a quart of fresh-drawn ale. But about the shipwrecked child, what he knew scarce anything. He had found her in his bed that morning, Moxie, no doubt, having been hard-pushed, with her husband in that state, what to do, and knowing how kind young what he was, she had quartered the baby upon him. But Watkin, though gifted with pretty good English, or Sassenach, as we call it, beyond all the rest of his family, could not follow the little creature in her manner of talking, which indeed, as I found thereafter, nobody in the parish could do except myself, and an Englishwoman whose word was not worth taking. "'Indeed and indeed, then, Mr. Llewellyn,' he went on in English, having an evident desire to improve himself by discourse with me. "'I did try, and I did try, and my mother, she tried too. Times and times, for sure we tried. But no use was the whole of it. She only shakes her head, and thinks with all her might, as you may say. And then she says, "'No, I says not hot,' she says. "'I's two years old, and I's bardy.' and my papa, he'd be very angry if he goes on so with me. My mamma yoves me, and I yove her, and papa, and ickle bother, and everybody. But not the naughty bad man. I doesn't. That isn't true English now, I don't think. Is it then, Mr. Llewellyn? Certainly not, I answered, seeing that my character for good English was at stake. And mother says she knows well enough the baby must be a foreigner, on her dress it is to show it. No name, as the Christians put, but marks without any meaning, and of clothes so few upon her till mother go to the old cupboard. Rich people, mother, do say they must be, but dead by this time, she make no doubt. Boy, I replied, your mother, I fear, is right in that particular. To me it is a subject of anxiety and sorrow and I know perhaps more about it than anyone else can pretend to do. The boy looked at me with wonder and eagerness about it, but I gave him a look as much as to say, Ask no more at present. However, he was so full of her that he could not keep from talking. We asked who the naughty bad man was, but she was afraid at that, and went all round the room with her eyes and hid under mother's apron. A dreadful she cried at breakfast about her mamma and her own spoon. To my heart I feel a pain when she does cry, I know I do, and then of a sudden she is laughing, and no reason for it. I never did see such a baby before. Do you think so, Mr. Llewellyn? End of chapter 8